We'll continue reading in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, where we left off at verse 23 this morning. Jesus has entered the temple for the second day in a row. He arrived there on what we call Palm Sunday. He turned the tables of the money changers. He made a scene before all the Pharisees and the scribes, the leaders of the people. They were shocked at what he had done. He left the temple area that day, came back the next day and cursed a fig tree on his way into Jerusalem. And that fig tree had withered and died. His disciples were amazed at such a thing. And Jesus had told them that if you have faith as a mustard seed, if you have faith and do not doubt, he had said, you will not only do that which was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now we ended that verse with a caution to all of us that we don't want to take for granted that this might be perhaps a blank check promise of Jesus, that whatever you ask, he'll give. It must always be according to his will. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed that same prayer, not my will, but thine be done. And so it is with each of us when we pray with that kind of faith in what God is capable of doing and what we believe God is wanting to do, then our prayers will be answered. That's why when we pray for the sick, we want to pray according to what His Word declares. And His Word does declare that He does heal. And so we ask the Lord for that wonderful mercy that He can and does allow each of us to experience in our lives in the healing of our bodies. But if he chooses not to, that's his choice, and we need to be faithful to him regardless. But Jesus now is continuing in the temple area, and he's now going to be confronted again by the Pharisees, scribes, and the elders of the religious elders of the day because they want to question his authority. He's teaching in the temple. He has done many healings in the temple area, in the outer courts. In addition to the turning of the tables, he's gathered around him many people who are anxious to hear the words coming from his lips. And these men who are leaders of the people in their religious system are jealous. And they're angry for what he had done. And so they come to him. In verse 23 of chapter 21, we're told, Now when he came into the temple and the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him, and he was, as he was teaching, they confronted him. And they said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So the question is multiple, but very similar. They're asking two separate questions. Who gave you this authority to do these things? Where did you get this authority? You see, the authority that they trusted in was the authority of rabbis who went before them, who taught them what they believed to be the things that they needed to know. Jesus had never sat any, under any of those rabbis. As far as they were concerned, he was a hick from Galilee. And I use that term really accurately because that's the impression that the people of Judea in the southern region of Israel 
perceived those people that lived in the northern area of Galilee to be basically the hicks of their society. They weren't well educated. They were primarily common workers, whereas in Jerusalem and in the other cities of Judea, that's where the people of power came. That's where the merchants were. That's where the money was. That's where the prosperity was. Jesus knew none of that. And from their point of view, he was just a country bumpkin. But he was speaking with power. And they wanted to know, how did you get that? Not only by what authority, where did that authority come from? Who gave you that permission to do such things? But also, how are you doing it? By what authority are you doing this thing? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus answers them. But he answers them with a question. And it's most amazing to me that Jesus does not condescend to their level of thinking. It's Jesus' plan and purpose to confront them with their error. And so he goes into this routine that we'll find throughout the remainder of his time on earth as we are given this information by the Apostle Matthew. And in verse 24, we see Jesus answer. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing. Which of you, or rather, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. So it's very simple. All right, you're asking me a question about authority? If you answer me, I'll answer you. And then he goes on, he says, what? Do you think? The baptism of John. Where was it from? From heaven or from men? Now remember, John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod. But before he was, he was a great prophet and the nation was completely convinced that he was indeed a prophet from God. And many people had been baptized by John and they had understood John's message. Repent! Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. They recognized the fact, the common people, that they were indeed sinners separated from God. And John's message struck a chord in them. And they realized this man is from the Lord. He's in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets that said a forerunner was to come. And not only did he tell them to repent from their sins, but he also said, having baptized them, that Jesus was the one that God was going to send after him. John the Baptist was just the forerunner of the Messiah. And he was there to introduce the world to that one that would be sent by God in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. And John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one. He must increase. I must decrease. The people knew this. The Pharisees and scribes had heard it. Some of them had actually gotten baptized by John the Baptist and turned from their sins, but not many of them. But the common people were coming in large numbers to John's baptism. They were being set free from their burden that they had upon themselves because they had entered into a lifetime of sin. Even as Jews, they realized that they had failed God miserably. And they came and they were set free from that bondage. 
The baptism of John was an amazing experience for them all. So Jesus is here asking the Pharisees and scribes this question. Was he from God or was this just another movement of men? It stumbled them. They couldn't, or at least they wouldn't, answer. Tells us in verse 25, And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they were stuck in the middle between two hard places. They couldn't give the answer one way or the other, because either way would bring condemnation to themselves. And rather than allow that to happen, they give Jesus their answer. Verse 27, so they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. What a cop out. They did know, but they would not say. It's not that they didn't know. They couldn't admit it. And Jesus responds to them, okay, neither will I tell you by what authority I I do these things. Simple. You won't tell me, I won't tell you. We'll find out later in this passage that he actually does tell them. But not after, or not until after, rather, he gives them a parable. Now remember, a parable is something that is a spiritual truth that utilizes physical reality to demonstrate that spiritual truth. They were familiar with farming. They were familiar with many things that they could see in their actual everyday experience. And Jesus, oftentimes, in the parables that he had taught them, would take those everyday experiences and use them in a parabolic form to illustrate a spiritual truth. And that's what he's going to do here in these last few parables that we will know Jesus has spoken before his crucifixion. And he speaks these Two in particular that we'll be looking at this morning, and then perhaps a third one, speaking to just those who were against him. These parables are the only two in all the parables that Jesus speaks that are exclusively spoken against the leaders of the people. Listen to what he has to say, because it's important. Remember, last time we talked about the fig tree and that the fig tree was a representation in the Old Testament of the nation of Israel. And so it is with the vineyard. We talked a little bit about that as well. And these two parables are going to take a look at that physical reality, that thing that they were familiar with, the vineyard, grapes. Isaiah chapter 5 is a good place to go before we begin looking at those parables. Isaiah chapter 5 talks about the vineyard. And I want you to read with me a few verses within that particular chapter. Beginning with verse 1 of chapter 5, the book of Isaiah. Now let me sing to my well-beloved, and that is a reference to the people of God, a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. His vineyard is the people of God. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. 
He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest wine. He built the tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of help. Isaiah spoke in the Old Testament of a vineyard that belonged to to the Lord. And he put a hedge around it, a wall around it, built a tower in it. He loved that vineyard. He wanted it to be productive, but all it did was bring forth ugly, wild grapes of no value. And so the only choice that the great God of Israel had for the people was to bring destruction. And he did exactly that. Isaiah was prophesying about the coming destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Just a few hundred years after Isaiah wrote this, Jerusalem was laid waste. The temple was destroyed. But now in Jesus' day, the temple has been rebuilt by Herod the Great. And the Jews are back in the land and things are looking like God is blessing, but that's not the case at all. They haven't changed. They're still oppressing the poor. They're still doing evil things in the city of God. They're still taking advantage of those who are under their authority. Sound familiar? seems to be happening around the world even today. But in Jerusalem it should not have been so. And that was the vineyard that was condemned by God in Isaiah's day and now we see Jesus speaking of another vineyard. And listen to what Jesus says. It's so very similar to what we just read in Isaiah 5 that I hope it makes a connection in your mind what Jesus says here in this parable. But what do you think he says in verse 28? A man had two sons And he came to the first and said, Son, go work in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, Well, the first. Because the first said, I'm not going to go. But then he regretted having disobeyed his father and afterward went and did indeed go into the vineyard. So he did the father's will. Just a bit of a sidebar here. There's some translations that kind of reverse the order. And so that the first one of the two sons says, I will. And the second one of the two sons says, I will not they end up ending up saying the same thing, but there's kind of a 
difference in the way they translated these verses. But the point is, the one who said no actually did go and do the Father's will. And that's what they agree now with Jesus' intent that they would see that certainly the one who actually did the work, even though he said he would not, was the one who did the Father's will. And so they said again in verse 31, the first did. And Jesus then said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, listen to this condemnation. I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. What a slam! Jesus is saying to these very, very prominent religious leaders, that harlot that accepted John's message, that tax collector that believed in God and the need for repentance and did so, that person, those persons are going to enter into the kingdom and those religious leaders who refused to accept the message of John, who refused to accept the message that Jesus was bringing, would be left out. Well, that apparently didn't quite ring true with them. And so Jesus is now going to emphasize more of this vineyard parabolic statement that he's been making. But before he does, he adds these words in verse 32. And this is John the Baptist that he's referring to. And this is why I said earlier that Jesus actually does tell them where John got his authority. Before he says in verse 32, John came to you in the way of righteousness. Righteousness comes from God. There is no other possible understanding of what Jesus is saying here. John came from God. And his authority came from God. So he answered their question, even though he said he wasn't going to if they didn't answer his question. He gave it to them anyway. Because he wanted them to know. He wants all to know. Yes, John came from the Lord God Almighty, and the message that he had was indeed the message that God wanted to deliver, and it needed to be heard, and it needed to be applied, and it needed to be adhered to all the days of our lives. He said, you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Even though you saw that tax collectors and harlots were coming to the Lord in large numbers, it made no difference in your position, which was a position against the will of God, the one that they professed to be serving. And he gives the second parable. Look at the similarity here in this parable to what Isaiah said in chapter 5. He says in verse 33, here another parable. There was a certain landowner, and this is a representation in the parable of God Almighty, who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around, just like Isaiah had spoken, dug a wine press in it, just as Isaiah had spoken, and built a tower, just as Isaiah had spoken. They would know the scripture. They would know that Isaiah had spoken these words in the fifth chapter of Isaiah, as we have it, to the leaders of the people of Israel. He continues and says, He leased this vineyard to vine dressers and went into a far country. 
He left it to them to take care of it. Now when vintage time drew near, verse 34 says, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his own son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Before we read their answer, take a look at what Jesus is saying. The vine was to be cared for by the leaders, those who were the vine dressers. They're beginning now to see the point that Jesus is making, as we'll see momentarily. He's pointing his finger at them. They are the ones who would have been responsible for taking care of the vineyard. But note what Jesus said in the parable. Those who were vine dressers despised those who were sent by the landowner. And there were some of them that they beat and killed some, stoned others. Friends, this is a description of The prophets that were sent by God in the Old Testament, many of them were treated exactly as what Jesus is describing here. The people who were leaders in their day hated the message of the prophets. And many of them were terribly punished by those leaders. Some were indeed killed. Isaiah was among them. According to tradition, he was sawn in half. Many were stoned. You can read through the Old Testament. Jeremiah was put into a pit, left for dead. God miraculously delivered him from that. But over and over in the Word of God, we see that prophets of God were terribly mistreated by the leaders of the people because they would not listen to the prophets. And that's why God judged them when He did judge them. And that's why God will judge, I believe, those who are against Him today in the same fashion. And I think of our own nation, just as an aside, we may not have prophets proclaiming the news that the prophets of old proclaimed, but we have people like you and I who are standing for the truth of God, who know God's Word and will take the risk of going out in public places and say, we believe God's Word. And when we say such things, they hate to hear it. But we must continue to proclaim it. He sent other servants, and they did more of the same, even more than they did at the first, Jesus had said. People, Don't think for a moment that we are going to escape such things. Now, if God's mercy is continuing to be upon us, and I pray that that will be the case, we may not see persecution in this day, in this country, but it's happening all over the world. And I believe, as the cliche says, coming to a theater near you. 
But take note of the fact that he adds one thing that they perhaps weren't expecting. In verse 37, read it again with me. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying they will respect my son. He's talking about himself here. They didn't have any prophets that would have spoken of such things. They didn't think at least they did, but they didn't know. There were many places in the Old Testament where he did speak of the Son of God, the one who would come. In one of the Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs asks, Who is this one? And who is his son, if you can tell me? There's no question that there were references to God the Father, God the Son in the Old Testament Scriptures. But it was revealed more fully in the New Testament Scriptures. And now we have that revelation and we can live by faith in knowing that he is talking about himself in this passage where he says in the parable, The landowner sent forth his son. Surely they will respect him. But they didn't. The vine dressers saw the son. They said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Jesus is referring to what is about to take place in this parable. He's letting them know he knows what their intent is, what their plan is. In verse 39, again reading the end of his statement in this proverb, So they took him and cast him, this is the son, out of the vineyard and killed him. And therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, he asks this question, What will he do to those vine dressers? Well, they said to him, He will surely destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. See their answer? Righteous indignation. They're saying, that bunch of idiots, they should have done what was right regarding what the owner of the vineyards wanted them to do. And since they did not, and since they treated those who were sent by the owner, they ought to be punished. And yes, that's right. They ought to be punished. I'm mindful of the fact that when David in the Old Testament sinned with Bathsheba, the woman next door, married to Uzziah. Uzziah was one of his great men of valor. And he was away fighting with General Joab against the Philistines. Bathsheba was called by David into his home and he had relations with her. An adulterous affair had taken place. And then when he found out that she was impregnated by him, he sought to get Uzziah killed. And ultimately, he was successful. David had sinned greatly. He had committed murder. He had performed an adulterous act. He was a king of Israel. And he deserved to be punished for it. Those things are criminal. As far as God is concerned, it deserves capital punishment. Nathan, the prophet, comes to David after all of these events had transpired. And Nathan tells King David a story. He says, David, there was a rich man who had many sheep. And he had a neighbor who had one sheep which he loved as his own 
And the rich man decided to throw a party. And instead of taking one of his own sheep's sheep to uh, you know have for a meal, he stole his neighbor's only sheep and took it and served it to his guests. Nathan says, what do you think should be done? When David heard that, he was infuriated. He said, that man must die. Nathan, brave prophet, Nathan, David, you are the man. But David repented. We see that repentance so very obvious in Psalm 51. Oh God, I have sinned against you. Against you only I have sinned and done this terrible thing. He asked for God's forgiveness and he got it. He repented. He turned from that which he had done. Regretted it and lived out the rest of his life knowing that God had forgiven him indeed. There were consequences to that sin. But he rested in the fact that he had God's forgiveness. When he cried out to God, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. He received that joy. So that he could say, Open my lips and I will pour forth your praise. And he would write other psalms later that reflected that wonderful gratefulness that he was so willing to express before all the people. But these Pharisees, these scribes, these leaders of the people would not repent. That's the difference. They chose not to repent. Oh, sin looks really bad when it's done by somebody else. But we seem to tend to cover it up when it's our sin, don't we? One of the things that Jesus had warned against, if you're going to condemn somebody for their sin, you may want to first look at your own life. And if there's a log in your eye, you must realize that log is there before you take out the splinter that is in the neighbor's eye. Jesus was saying very plainly there that your sin needs to be examined before you examine somebody else's sin. They would not do that. So again in verse 41, they said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers. They're speaking truth here. That's exactly what happened. God opened the door to the Gentiles because the leaders of the Jews had rejected the message. In verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? Remember, that's one of the favorite things that Jesus has been asking them over and over. We've seen that in Matthew's Gospel. Have you not read? Have you not read? Do you not remember? Have you not heard? Oh, yes, they had. This is condemning speech. This is bringing it home. This is putting it back on their shoulders and saying, you've got to deal with this, buddy. Have you not read? Surely you have, because you're leaders of the people, and you are the ones who know the Word of God. You're the ones who have recorded the Word of God, as scribes would have to do. You are the ones who have read and understood that God is indeed the judge of all things, and that He's coming again to judge all people. But you think nothing of the fact that though you've read these things, you should have applied them to yourself, but you did not. Have you not read the Scriptures, Jesus says? So he reminds them, and again he uses Psalm 118. 
You may remember that when he went into Jerusalem on the Palm Sunday, that people were shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That came from Psalm 118. Jesus also quoted on that day another portion of that great psalm, Psalm 118. It was the last of what's known as the Hallel Psalms. They sang the Hallel Psalms on Passover as they approached the Passover day. A series of psalms that were very intended intended for one purpose, to bring the people to a place of worship of their God before they offer the sacrificial lamb. And now Jesus is here quoting again from that very psalm. Had you not read in the Scriptures, and here's a quotation, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. The stone which the builders rejected, the stone is Christ. The builders are the leaders of the people, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the elders of the people. They rejected the stone. Jesus is here saying that those who reject the stone are rejecting it for one reason. It's a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. There are types in the Bible with regard to rock and stone that we hopefully will be able to recall and and think about, consider, as we move forward in our walk with Him. Here we have the stone that is rejected, a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. It's a stumbling stone to them because they would not receive. They couldn't get beyond that stone. They rejected it. There's a story in the old writings of the Hebrews that speak of the building of Solomon's temple. And in the building of Solomon's temple, they did not cut any of the stones in the walls, inside the walls of the city. They quarried the stones outside the city and brought the stones in for the building of the temple because the Lord had said that there should not be the sound of any hammer in the building of the temple. And they were obedient to that. But the story goes that there was one stone that was built, cut out, to be either the cornerstone or the capstone. And it's hard to know from the Hebrew language which one it was implying. The cornerstone would be that stone that needed to be precisely cut so that it made the most important corner of the building square. And if it was not square, the rest of the building would not line up properly. So the cornerstone, in that sense, was the most important stone of all of that construction that would be needing to be taking place. The other possibility is that it was referring to a capstone, and a capstone is the top of an arch stone. And it has to be perfectly weighted and perfectly shaped in order to hold up the rest of the entryway that the capstone fits upon. In either case, the capstone or the cornerstone were very, very important. And in this old story of the Hebrew writers, they brought this stone into Jerusalem and the builders didn't know what to do with it. They weren't prepared for it. They didn't know what it was for, so they set it aside. 
And they continued to build and they continued to work on the construction until some day afterward they realized, well, where is it? Was it the cornerstone or the capstone? We don't know. But let's say it was the capstone. Where's the capstone? Why haven't they brought us a capstone? We can't finish the work. Somebody go down to the quarry and find out what's going on. And when they found out that they had put that capstone and brought it into the city long ago, then they realized that the capstone had been set aside. And it was there all along. They just didn't know it. Well, it's an interesting story. I don't know if it's true or not, but it points out something of the great importance that Jesus is placing on this cornerstone found here referred to and from Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. But to them it was a stumbling stone. There's another Old Testament story found in Daniel chapter 2. You may recall that Daniel was in the city of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar the king had a dream. He had dreamed of an image and the image that he saw was a very strange image. It had a head of gold, it had shoulders of silver, chest, abdomen of bronze, legs of iron, feet of a mixture of iron and clay. And he couldn't figure out what that was all about, so he called on Daniel, who was an interpreter of dreams, to find out what it was that that dream was all about. And Daniel explained to him. Daniel said, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head, the king of Babylon. Gold represented total authority. But after you, another kingdom will come. It will be of a lesser quality, silver. Not as strong, not as powerful. And then after that, a third kingdom will come. And still, less powerful than the first and second. Made of bronze. The last one, iron. Very, very powerful. Those are describing the kingdoms that came into power from Babylon until this present hour. The feet of clay and iron mixed. That represents a rebuilding of what once was the Roman Empire. The feet of iron and clay has not yet come on the scene. The Roman Empire was the legs of bronze, of iron, rather. All of that to say that in that dream, Nebuchadnezzar also saw something as well. He saw a rock, a stone, not built with hands, not cut out with hands, but it came out of the ground and it grew huge stone and it came down upon the feet of iron and clay and it crushed the statue and it crumbled and went into powder. Such was its destruction. Daniel said, that is the final kingdom and it will come and it filled the whole earth. It's a reference of the kingdom of God being established the kingdoms, kingdoms of men will find their, their demise eventually. The kingdom of God. That rock that falls on that statue is what we refer to as the smiting stone. It smote the statue. The kingdoms of men will fall indeed. 
And there are men who are part of that kingdom who will see that demise instead of being this cornerstone that was rejected by the people of God, the Jews. The smiting stone is that which is rejected by the nations. And then there's the last stone, this cornerstone. Many times in the Old Testament scriptures we find reference to the rock of our salvation. That's the cornerstone. David knew. Other writers knew that the rock is Christ. And He is our sure foundation. David said, The Lord God has put me on a rock that is higher than I. David said, He is the rock of my salvation, my high tower. Paul the Apostle talked about Jesus being that foundation upon which no other uh, building can be laid. Jesus is that sure foundation, that solid rock. Jesus had said about that rock being Himself, you build a house upon the rock and it will stand no matter what comes your way, but if you build your house on sand, the storms will wash it away. He is that rock. And for us, it is a comfort to know that though He has come as a rock of offense to those who reject Him, He's a rock of our salvation. That's why Jesus says again in verse 44, whoever falls on this stone will be broken. That sounds almost harsh, doesn't it? But it's not. In a sense that Jesus intended, spiritual brokenness is in mind here. You fall upon Him for your salvation. You fall upon Him for that which you need to live a godly life. You fall upon Him. And yes, you will be broken. But a broken and contrite heart is what God wants to make of each of us. So we should expect, though it may sound harsh, that this concept that He's referring to here is a blessing to anyone who would simply fall on Him to recognize that that is a good thing for you and for me because all of our pride, all of our selfishness, all of our sinfulness, all of our evil things that have beset us are taken care of, are broken away, and we have been made new creations in Him. I want that kind of brokenness. And the only way to receive that kind of brokenness is to fall on Him. But He says again in verse 44, but on whomever it falls, remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar, whomever it falls upon, it will grind him to powder. Look at the contrast. What Jesus is saying here applies to every one of us in this room. And it applied to them as well. Remember, Jesus is giving these parables specifically in mind to point some things out to these individuals who have come against Him and who have asked, by what authority do you say these things? And who gave you this authority? He's told them. And they finally get it. Verse 45, it tells us, Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard this parable they perceived that he was speaking of them. Duh! Yeah, that's right. They were speaking, or he was rather, speaking of them. They got it. 
They realized it. Did they repent? Did they turn from their plan to kill the Messiah? No. Verse 46 tells us plainly, when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for prophet. They wanted to destroy him. They wanted to kill him right there, right then, but they were afraid of the people. They could have repented. They could have turned. They could have had the same result as anyone else who had come by faith to Jesus Christ, falling on Him and being broken in spirit and contrite in heart to receive Him as their Lord and Savior, and He would have accepted them. But they would not. Chapter 22 begins another parable. And I believe that this parable is very, very important for us to consider because it does apply to all, not just the Pharisees and the scribes, but everyone. Verse 1 of chapter 22 says, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by a parable and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. He sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. That's the Pharisees and the scribes. That's anyone who has refused to accept the invitation that God has made to come. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus said. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Come, drink of the waters that are freely given. Verse 4 says, Again he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. This is a king inviting his servants, his own people that he is king over, to come and enjoy the blessings that he wants to bestow upon them. This is a remarkable parable that he's speaking here. He continues in verse 5 and says, But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his own business. You realize what he's saying here is all men have a choice. You can go God's way or you can go your way. And if your way isn't God's way, then you are in very deep trouble indeed. You're rejecting the offer of the king. And oh, how it must pain the king when those who have been given this offer turn away. But the offer is to all. God's will is not that any should perish, but that all should come to salvation. For God so loved the whole world that He gave His only Son. No one's excluded. Everyone's invited. Continuing on in this great parable, In verse 6, the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. This is a reference to Jerusalem. It's going to happen just a few years after these words that Jesus has spoken. 
And then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. I'm reminded elsewhere in Scripture that it's God's will that His house would be full. And that's perhaps another message that we can share another time. But God does have a plan to have His wedding feast. And the chamber will indeed be full. It's His desire. He's expressing it here in this parable. And they all came from everywhere. This isn't isn't just Jews. This is everybody Gentiles and Jews alike, invite them all to the wedding from the byways, the highways, wherever you find them, tell them to come. The house was filled. Verse 11 says, But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Now remember, we've talked about this parable in the past, not too awfully long ago. And just as a reminder, every wedding guest was supplied by the king a garment to wear at the wedding. It was a wedding garment to put over their own clothing so that they would all have an appropriate garment upon themselves. This was required by the king, expected by the king, that they would put on that garment that he had provided to them. Christ died for your sins and for mine. And in having received that salvation that He alone has been able to offer and provide, He exchanged our sinful nature with His righteousness. And His righteousness is likened to a garment of righteousness that we have been covered by. A garment of righteousness that's pure white to cover us with His righteousness, to remove our unrighteousness and exchange it for that which He alone can provide. He's the King who is inviting the guests. And the guests have come. And they put on that garment that He alone has provided. But this parable tells us there's one who stands out. Verse 12, So He said to him, well, verse 11, but when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. And listen carefully to what the king does. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. A description of hell. A description of one who chooses to come in his own way, rather than the way that the Lord prescribes. There are many who might say, oh, there are lots of ways to come to God. You don't have to be doing it His way. You know, that's not really necessary. As long as you lead a good life, as long as you, you know, just do nice things to people, you're friendly, you're kind, you're generous, 
you're going to stand before God. And if you're going to go before God with that mindset that I did everything that I believe I needed to do, so you've got to let me in kind of mentality, you're going to find out that what God's going to say to you is, get behind me, I never knew you. But on the other hand, if you put upon yourself that garment that He provides and you enter into the wedding chamber with that garment upon you, you have the guarantee that you're accepted by Him because you've come His way. There is no other way. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that's what He was talking about. Oh, people of God, we've got to let others know because there are many out there that you and I are both familiar with that would think that they can get in because of what they have accomplished. They're wrong. It's what God has accomplished. And only what God has accomplished that determines whether we can get in or not. If we get in without that garment, this is what the consequence of such an attitude is. Send him out. And outside of that wedding feast, many will stand condemned. It's a message for today because the time is short. Oh, please, Lord God, help us by the power of your Holy Spirit, to draw men and women unto you. It is by your Spirit only that these things can happen, because it's your Spirit who convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's your Spirit who draws them and us to yourself. So fill us by your Spirit, Lord God, and let us be used by you in these last days We know that you want your house to be full. And we know that that will happen because it is your word and your will for it to be so. And Lord, we know that it has not yet happened because we're still here. And I believe, Lord God, that the church will not depart from this earth until that house is indeed full. For your word declares that there is coming a day when the fullness of Gentiles will be come in. That implies the house will be full and you will be ready then to begin that great day of wrath that will come upon the earth. But we, O oh Lord, your church, have the promise that we will not suffer that wrath of God. But until that day comes, Lord God, I pray that you would make us ready and make us faithful stewards of the mysteries of God. And let us, Lord God, shine your light that they might see. By faith, Lord God, we stand. And we praise you for it, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Amen.